My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Anacreon. Um, he is um, a, a person I found in, in an unlikely place, a place that I usually use for sourdough baking and watching people have, you know, unattainable lifestyles and all that. Um, and a place that probably a lot of my viewers and listeners don't really, um, maybe they frequent, but not necessarily for their post-liberal fix. Um, he is an Instagram influencer. Um, I don't exactly remember how I found him. Maybe... Um, there's another account I follow uh, that cross posts with Twitter, like a Beyond Woke and Problematic, I think maybe recommended you. I don't exactly know, but I'm really happy someone did. Uh, and I found you. Uh, and welcome. Welcome to Subversive Podcast, Anacreon. Yeah, well, thank you for dredging me up out of the cesspit of Instagram. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. I didn't want to make it uh, sound like there's there's nothing happening. It's obviously something happening on Instagram as well. Um, but because I'm a Twitter uh, Twitter personality, um, my my domain is Twitter. That's where I usually source my guests. And uh, it was interesting to you know to see you do some some really wonderful work. Especially in terms of explaining, you know, what what we in Twitter <laughs> call post liberalism or kind of uh, meta liberalism, <laughs> and um, you do a, a wonderful job of it. And you also have a, a talent of you know condensing things, uh, presenting. Um, I mean, the format on Instagram is essentially you have series of of little bits of text that are you know very visually engaging, uh, and you kind of have this like sequential way of explaining. Things and to be honest, a, a lot of stuff that a lot of pushback that I get to post liberalism uh, is is the fact that it's it's a bit convoluted. People don't really get it. You know, I, I get a lot of people telling me like, "Oh, you actually don't mean classical liberalism. You just mean you know progressive liberalism." And those people are crazy. Yeah. Or you know, oh, we're looking for equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome, and, and stuff like that. And what you do is very, very, you know. It's a, it's a amazingly pointed, uh, and and you do it to to great effect. I think so. That's that's kind of what attracted me to it, and I feel like this is probably some of the best explanations that I found out there. Very simple, very very direct. So that's I want to commend you for doing that. Well, thank you very much. And I mean, I have to say, I wasn't even aware that the center of gravity for this movement was on Twitter until you recommended it to me. And since then, I've been kind of addicted to, to to the various Twitter accounts that I've found. And yeah, I, I to your point about simple explanations, I, I do think that to an extent we, we're hamstrung by the drift that's happened to some of these terms where, you know, liberalism has become like AOC and like Nancy Pelosi. And so you kind of, in order to get people to understand what you're saying, you have to really go back to basics. And that turns a lot of people off right out of the gate because they don't want to go back and, and relearn these terms or it doesn't make sense to them or they're just like not engaged enough. So I settled on the format that I do, the infographic format, as kind of a reaction to the pastel infographics that kind of took over over the summer of 2020 after the George Floyd and the BLM. And I saw those and I thought like, I can do that. I was, I was, I was, I was sick of looking at like impacts posts and being like, man, I could do that. I was like, I'm actually going to go and do it. <laughs> um, and so it is, it's very much like on Instagram, at least it's a format that's associated with a certain kind of like progressivism that I've just kind of co-opted. And I think, you know, that's more in line with people's attention spans on Instagram, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting because sometimes, um, I just, I kind of just, you know, browse your account cause I, it's one of my favorites. Uh, and it's, you know, I, you, you settle on topics that are, that are kind of on my mind at the same time. There might be, you know, because there's a whole big hive mind, you know, everyone kind of about the same right, stuff, but yeah. it's like, it's kind of uncanny how, you know, especially because you're not on Twitter because, you know, Twitter is always like, there's always some <laughs> new new discourse popping up, um, and yeah, I, I think there there might be like um, I think the world might be ready for these conclusions now. I feel like you know stuff like the IDW and you know just a general anti woke is a bit 
um, is a bit dead now. And people are kind of looking around and saying, hmm, you know, the, the explanations coming out of those corners are not very satisfying. Um, so yeah, I think this is, this is a new thing. Obviously I like to think that cause this is what my podcast is about, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. How did, how did you find your way into this sphere? Cause, um, yeah, Twitter has a certain pipeline, but, uh, you know, you're here on Instagram. How, how come? Yeah. So, so it was, um, it was kind of, I feel like I have like a, like a joker story <laughs> for this. And I feel like I, as like, as like my cohort ages up, I think a lot of people are going to say similar things where I was a university student. Um, I was actually quite liberal when I first entered university because I had been in a, in a high school that was very like I had a conservative cast. And I guess I was just a contrarian. And I was like super big on globalization and, and multilateral institutions. And then so I went to university um, and was really almost disgusted by the intellectual climate that I found there in terms of the, you know, People were like unwilling to engage with other ideas. And it was compounded because I went to a school that's very well known for politics and for turning out people in politics, especially with regards to the American Foreign Service. So to find people so hidebound in like an era where we're clearly facing, you know, new sets of challenges was was jarring. And then the pandemic hit (laughs) and I and I was locked in my house with nothing to do except think for, for several months. And then. George Floyd hit and everyone was talking about this. And I, I realized like this is bankrupt. And so I was disaffected. And then I picked up quite randomly a book by uh, Ross Duthat, who I love and I can't recommend highly enough. It was called The Decadent Society. It had, it had just come out. Um, and it was like a jarring enough title that I, I grabbed it off the shelf of my local bookstore. And that really launched it. And I thought like this guy is saying interesting things. Um, he's a, he's one of the very few conservatives on the New York Times editorial board. He puts out opinion pieces. He's um, a staunch Catholic. I don't know if I would call him an integralist, but he's, you know, in that general set. Yeah, that was how I found my way in. It was a combination of, you know, disaffected by what I found in university and then the pandemic and then the discourse around the summer of 2020. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way in because um, I think I think Ross is seen as a kind of a, a bit of a centrist. Um, people generally like it, you know, to describe the the Twitter pipeline. People generally come in through. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with NRX and and Mencius Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin. Um, that's kind of the, the 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 first red pill or Nick Land. That's kind of how I found kind of neo reaction, um, and that's that's that was kind of like the the big scary critique of liberalism and they're they're like you said you know there's catholic integralists as well uh so it's it's interesting that you've uh essentially it's, it's ross is kind of a, a mainstream figure like you said he's on he's in the new york times and he's written quite a few books and you know big books so yeah i think that's that's a cool way to to you know get red pilled yeah i mean it was definitely not not nearly as dramatic as um curtis yarvin i mean i'm familiar with the broad outline of what he's saying i'm I tend to be skeptical of anything that comes out of silicon valley at all <laughs> um, so, so um so I wouldn't say I'm a fellow traveler of his but i'm 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 certainly familiar and you know as far as critiques of liberalism go, his is very well fleshed out. I can appreciate that. Yeah, I think, you know, this is probably the, the, the fairest critique of the movement and of this podcast is that, you know, what what's your solution? And it, it is true. I mean, it's um, if if one were to take the, the critique of liberalism seriously, you know, and also its implications and the, the probable consequences that's going to have, um, you know, it's uh, it, it's going to take something, something, something's got to give somewhere. Uh, and it's it's a weird position to be put in to say, OK, so tell us oh oh great oracle <laughs> what is it gonna be who's 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 the american caesar or who's who's gonna right. take over so yeah it's a it's a it's a weird one and i know that in in your writing you you say that um collapse you mentioned collapse and that's a theme obviously of uh of this you know that you know what uh, what you know what uh can't go on won't go on um you know how do you see um collapse? I mean, why, well, first, you know, why will there be collapse? And two, how do you see that coming about? Well, in terms of why there will be collapse, I just, I think you ultimately, it's impossible to square the circle of infinite growth on a planet with finite resources. And that's really what it comes down to. And beyond that, I think there's a lot of contingent forms that it will take. I don't know what we're going to run out of or what will spark it or even whether or not it will be one kind of coherent thing or more of a process. But 
you know, ecological overshoot is real. It has happened to civilizations before. I mean, the Maya basically farmed themselves out of existence. There's some theory that Rome faced a kind of agricultural collapse that hasn't its end. Um, the Khmer in Southeast Asia destroyed their topsoil by clearing away forests. And then, you know, their whole civilization dried up and blew away. So, you know, this has happened before. I think that there's kind of a techno-optimist strain that says, like, oh, we're like, go mine asteroids or, you know, colonize Mars. But mining asteroids won't solve the problem. Like, you can bring as much nickel back to the planet as you can, but, like, you can't mine asteroids for food. <laughs> and um, terraforming Mars, even if we dropped everything and as, you know, a globe and focused only on terraforming Mars, maybe 500 years before you could like put something in the soil there and it would grow. Like, so, I mean, it's just, there's no way around it. There's no way to square that circle. You know, as to your question about what form it will take, I think collapse is a dramatic word. Civilizations have collapsed and the people who lived in them have largely survived in one form or another. I mean, the Maya as an ethnic group are still around. The same can be said about the Khmer in Cambodia. Rome in many senses is still with us today. So, you know, I think in turn, I don't, I don't see like, Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't see like cities going up in flames and tsunamis and, and volcanoes. I mean, I, I see sort of a, a slow process of unraveling whereby our civilization becomes poorer, less technologically advanced, more locally focused. There's a return to religion in some form or another. And while people continue to appeal to this like sense of bygone glory, much like, you know, the people who lived in the forum of Rome after, after the empire fell, like it's you know, life will continue. And so it shouldn't be looked on as this as apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, we will certainly regress a couple levels of sophistication. Yeah, I mean, in, in certain ways, that's already happening. I feel, you know, like there's there are many like, there are many such where people can't even, you know, build a bridge or, you know, re rebuild infrastructure. I mean, they, it feels like the the, the glory of the American empire, kind of like the, the Anglo empire, which we're all a part of, um, it's, is has been maybe like 50, 60 years ago. That was maybe peak. And since then it's been, uh, it's been going down, but there it's, it's kind of been shielded by the fact that there's this blinding new technology that looks like magic and just, you know, enraptures everyone, but the actual material reality behind it is not improving uh, in many of the the ways that are actually relevant to people. You're absolutely right. And that's something actually that, that, that Ross Douthat said a lot about in his book. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware that he was regarded as a centrist on Twitter. I find that funny. Or reading the comment sections of his opinion pieces on the New York Times website, you'd think he was like a harbinger of fascism. Anything that's <laughs> on the New York Times, believe me. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's not a great barometer. But but yeah, I think the, the example of that, of like infrastructural, like hard infrastructural regression that people often talk about is that we cannot rebuild the Saturn V rocket that took us to the moon. We don't have the know-how to do that anymore. We have the blueprints, um, but those blueprints were modified in ways that were unique to the mission. And, you know, the people, there was no effort to preserve that knowledge. And the people who, you know, built the rocket are retired and largely dead, and they took their knowledge with them. If we were to do another lunar mission, which I think we're trying to do now with Artemis, you kind of have to start from scratch, which is a really resource-intensive endeavor. And I think, yeah, it shows that in some ways that process has already started. And, you know, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical of the idea of like peak resources, like peak oil, peak gas, peak copper is something that people have been talking about lately. But there is, you know, there's there's a limit beyond which it's not economical to extract. And I think we're 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 approaching that within the next century. Certainly, um, there's going to be a reckoning where we're, you know, we can't sustain the level of growth. I mean, the most advanced economies are running into that already. Yeah. And there's um, I mean, I think probably the, the, the core idea behind uh, a lot of the West is, you know, this, this concept of, of progress and behind a lot of liberalism essentially is the idea of progress, but you can see it in technology as well. Like there is such a thing as a low hanging fruit and it's been picked. And now we're, we're scratching our heads as to uh, where to go. I mean, what's, what's your um, position uh, towards progress? Do you believe in progress? Absolutely not. No. No, I think that there's change, but progress, the term progress, you know, it, it conveys a sense of, of 
moral authority that I think has been horribly misplaced since the concept came about. I mean, the early progressives, you know, kind of the the Woodrow Wilson era were thoroughgoing imperialists. One of the first big progressive campaigns in the U.S. was to annex the Philippines because, you know, they needed American enlightenment uh, in order to progress. <laughs> and uh, eugenics was another kind of progressive brainchild, um, improving the race. So, I mean, I just looking at its track record, I mean, yeah, I think I think it's very presumptuous to look at something and say, oh, this is progress. And, you know, I think history often takes a very cyclical character. And so it's 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 more, you know, where are we along the cycle? It, it, it won't end. Right. Like that was Fukuyama's mistake in saying, like, this is it. It's over. History comes back with a vengeance. There is no like utopia on Earth. It's kind of a religious, like a pseudo-religious sop to say like, oh, someday we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll hit like a post-scarcity society where like everybody is taken care of and nothing bad will ever happen again. Like that's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, the materialist answer to heaven and it's unattainable. So viewing history as like a line that's leading to some place is probably short-sighted, I think. Yeah. And I feel like um, that's kind of probably the, the main split between um you know, the, the IDW classical liberal types and um, whatever, you know, post-liberalism is and is evolving into, it's just this this uh, disbelief in, in the idea of progress. Um, because, you know, if you ask, a, a, you know, the typical classical liberal um, that, you know, what uh, what do they believe in? You know, they believe in, essentially, they, they'd probably describe something as, uh, you know, that people are intelligent, they're, you know, resourceful, they can solve problems and, you know, things are getting better all the time. And, you know, kind of like the Steven Pinker view of, you know, uh, violence is decreasing, uh, everything's going well. And I think, you know, some, some stats exist to back that up and things have really gotten better in some ways, but um, it's also, you know, there's, there's no inherent direction to it, like you said. Um, and I feel like this is not, you know, they, these people typically tend to be tied into rationalism and, you know, they, they think that this is a, a rational response, but um, this is probably, you know, just as faith-based as transubstantiation or some, any sort of, you know, um, uh, religious idea. So I, I, I feel like that's why a lot of people are starting to move towards post-liberalism because this is, you know, they, they're starting to realize that there is no, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think people people are realizing that you you can make a desert and call it peace, right? Just because nothing is happening doesn't mean that like things are getting better. And, you know, I think a post-scarcity society would be an immensely boring one. I think that we'd probably rip ourselves apart just trying to, you know, get our kicks in. Like, I, And I feel quite bad for classical liberals because I feel like in a lot of senses, they've been left behind by their own ideology. And they're left out here you know, defending something that they're co-religionists, the progressives and, you know, for a while at least the fascists were, were you know, had moved beyond, right? If you're like, you know, like a Piers Morgan or, you know, whatever happened to like free speech, like you happened, right? Like your ideology, like this is a, this was a natural progression and you should have seen it coming. Uh, and so classical liberals, I feel, are just trying to turn the clock back on, on an inevitable process. Even if, you know, we as a society decided to drop everything and reaffirm classical liberal values of open debate and, you know, rationalism and like Enlightenment era, like faith in, in science and, and, and the Cartesian method and, the, and the, we'd end up exactly where we are 50 years from now. Like this is just, this is what happens. This is a natural process of decay. It's entropic almost. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think it wouldn't even take 50 years because now you have the internet, which is just like so <laughs> yeah. higher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I've said that has gotten the most pushback is lumping like fascism and communism together as like the ugly children of liberalism. I think fascists, communists and liberals alike <laughs> have voiced various objections to that characterization. But I do think that they share a common root in the liberal tradition and the humanistic tradition, I think, as, as Yuval Noah Harari Hariri says. Um, I, haven't, I have to go back and look at his name. I keep, I keep quoting him and not knowing what his name is. Uh, Harari? I Harari. Think so. I think I'm going to go with Harari. Hariri, I think, is Lebanese somehow. Um, and he's Israeli. But yeah, so I mean, so they took it in different directions. Communists took the liberal analysis of the world and focused on dialectical materialism and, you know, rationalistic, like, you know, if we analyze the world in this specific way, we can predict the future um, and steer it towards this glorious, stateless, classless society. 
Whereas fascists took nationalism, which was another very liberal idea, something that did not exist before the liberal revolution um, and only really came to the fore after 1848 and elevated that to the same kind of theistic status that the Marxists did with materialism and said, you know, the nation is transcendent. You have to fight and die for your nation because that's the godhead almost. And so I view them as different strains of, of rationalism and of humanism. And so I see their, their rise as an inevitable result of, of the liberal process, not as a bug, but as a feature. So that's, that's kind of why I ended up rejecting classical liberalism. I don't think it solves any problems. I think it just resets the clock yeah. on, the, on the problems that we do have. Um, what would you say to the idea that any sort of group of humans will tend to um, want to elevate something to uh, like the, the, um, to, a, to a metaphysical degree? You know, the, the idea that everybody worships and essentially a, a good state is one where what you worship is something pro-social rather than something that's going to destroy you slowly or, fa or fast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, human beings tend towards transcendence. There's no such thing as, well, I suppose, you know, real atheism exists, but, you know, most people who say that they are, are just very, very liberal Protestants. Like, everybody has to believe in something. If you don't, you end up in a, in a nut house like Nietzsche. That was somebody who really didn't believe in anything except himself. And, you know, that's what happened to him. <laughs> so, and I think the question is, you know, how do we do this in a way that doesn't tear ourselves apart? And I think when you were, when you go all the way back to almost prehistory, when you had people worshiping features of the, of the landscape around them, that was very particularist. And that was something that didn't lead to a lot of interreligious conflict because, you know, not only can you not really make someone worship the God of your like stream or of your like giant rock, but like, why would you want to anyway? And then when you had um, these kind of messianic religions that claimed universality, Christianity and Islam, and sort of to a much lesser extent, Buddhism, you ended up with wars of religion. And I see certainly kind of the Marxist idea of internationalism and kind of global class conflict as a continuation of that. And with the fascists, it's a little more complicated. They kind of co-opted the Darwinian idea of, you know, organisms need space to grow. Our nation needs space to grow. We're going to go take that space from you. So yeah, so it's a question of, you know, what, what as a society do you elevate? And I think kind of the more abstract that concept is, the more you might run into trouble with either trying to impose it on other people or, you know, kind of viewing your, your imperative to expand as, as something that should be like exercised over other people. Yeah, there's uh, there's a, a whole problem kind of tied into scale here, and I feel like now you know we're we're essentially a global village. We're all kind of part of the the, the globalist American empire in some way or <laughs> another. I mean, I'm talking to you from Romania, so there's a yeah, we're we're here as well. Um, <laughs> definitely not central, but still part of it. Um, and I mean, s scale seems to be um, you know because if you if you're talking about metaphysics. Um, it's it's one of the the kind of core components of being able to relate to someone else. You know, do we worship the same God? Um, and you couldn't, for example, do business, or you couldn't necessarily live in a in a world that um, that you know has the features that that ours has without, in a way, worshiping the same gods. And you know, we we do that as well. Like you know, they're they're piping in the new gods through Instagram and everywhere every day. You know, like you said, those those illustrations. You know, they've most of my friends are brainwashed. Most of my girlfriends, especially, because they spend a lot of time online and you know scrolling through these, <laughs> through these whatever cartoons, uh, explaining life to them. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting time, I think, to be on the eastern marches of the American Empire. Um, <laughs> there's a lot a lot going on at the moment, and I think we'll see a test of like how how committed really are we to this post war consensus. I think the answer is not nearly as much as think tanks would like us to be. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think absolutely there's the, the Internet has played a role in distributing these ideals and manufacturing consensus in a way that Ingsoc could only like dream of to, you know, beat a dead horse. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I really like that image of piping in the new gods. I think that there's there's a lot to that. One thing that I see that people kind of regard in, in almost a transcendent light is the concept of human rights. And I think it has... That's a very Protestant formulation, this kind of modern idea of rights. And it has the kind of the same universalist 
typecast as as the Christian God, um, especially the the Protestant Christian God. You know, it's something that that we've been willing to go to war for in the past. Yeah. And you know, I think the more you look, the more you can find shibboleths, like ideas that kind of take the place of God in a liberal paradigm. Um, but yeah, human rights is the one that springs to mind the most for me. Yeah, it's uh, you know, the, I think the distributors calls them magic words. Um, yeah. So there's so many of them, but yeah, human rights is an interesting one because it, it, most people, almost anyone you ask, you you'd think, oh, okay, human rights, yeah, of course, uh, you know, the right to probably they can think about one or two, maybe they make up one, uh, but it seems like a very natural thing. I mean, what what do you think is wrong with the concept of human rights? I mean, that's a really complicated question. I suppose my issue is with the with the idea of universalist rights in general. I don't think there's anything wrong with making sure that kids have enough food to eat or that sexual assault is criminalized. My objection isn't as much to the, to the actual content of the policies as to their kind of epistemic roots. And yeah, I think it's this continuation of a Protestant universalist tradition that I take issue with because it claims to be secular and non-religious, but it clearly is. And I mean, you see kind of on like the like the Chomsky style left, you see this come into conflict where they're like, oh, we should uh, protect and uphold local cultures. But like, what if their local culture is like throwing gay people from buildings, which is, which is, you know, that's the way it is in a lot of the world. Um, and so that, that conflict has been interesting to observe on the liberal left um, as it tries to like incorporate these post-colonialist ideals. I wouldn't say I'm opposed to the content of human rights, but I do, I, I do, I would put it in the category of magic words. It's something that you're not allowed to criticize. And for that reason alone, you know, it's something that you should look at very critically and say like, you know, what, what is the origin of this? You know, ought we to be imposing this on, on other cultures? Why are we doing it? Yeah. Who is benefiting? And I think, especially when it comes to American foreign policy, um, human rights advocacy plays a huge legitimizing role. And you see this in Afghanistan in the cities, in Kabul and, and Kandahar, you, you, um, that were most firmly under the pro-American government, you, you kind of have this, this urban upper class that has become very committed to the idea of particularly women's rights. And, you know, when the empire withdraws and leaves this kind of assimilated imperial elite behind and they cry out for protection, then that's something that people who want to go back in can use to say, like, look, we need to save the Afghan girls. When, you know, the reality is that in the countryside where these ideas never really penetrated, there isn't that call. People were mostly, I think, just relieved to be out of the war one way or the other. And so, yeah, so, so from, from, you know, an American foreign policy perspective, having these elites, these westernized elites with, with you know, who have been inculcated with the doctrine of human rights is, is very convenient. Absolutely. And there's, uh, they, they also serve as a, as a smokescreen for um, these supranational organizations and huge NGOs, you know, like that have, you know, also almost, almost in um, infallible names like UNICEF, yes. like, uh, you know, the United Nations, you know, and that's just the most benevolent, nice people doing only doing God's work across the world, mm -hmm. saving children, deworming intensely, continuously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Um, and, you know, obviously figure, figures like uh, Bill Gates, who has done a lot of good in, in, in many ways. But at the same time, they are taking massive political action no, with no accountability um, uh, under the guise of, you know, human rights and just just essentially this this kind of ethereal concept of good that's you can't even attack with anything because you know why would you why would you speak against the the, the yeah. benefactors do you like hate babies like yeah it's <laughs> kind of the so uh yeah absolutely and i think the amount of money that ngos have made out of places like afghanistan is grotesque and for a lot of people that's the motivation and then for a lot of people you know they really want to do the world a good turn that you know the bien pensant left has condemned missionary work so vociferously, but still stands behind this, I think is kind of funny because there's not, there's not really that much of a difference. And yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to attack what they're doing, which is probably how they like it, right? Like you can't get up there and say like, I, you know, stand against deworming children and uh, educating girls. Like you just sound like a jerk, but you do kind of have to look at like, what are, what are the presuppositions that are governing people who behave in this way? And do we want to accept those? You can help people without it being contingent on development goals that have very little to do with the situation on the ground. 
there's that that photo um, that kind of made the rounds, at least on Instagram in August. I don't know if it made its way to Twitter of this crowd of refugees guarded by the Taliban that was marching past this wall that was painted with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And it was like gender equity, racial tolerance, sustainable seafood. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, you know, you look at that and it's like, clearly there's some disconnect. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's incredible how, um, yeah, just not only just Western focused they are, but you know, that represents a very, very particular class that composes, I don't know, just, a definitely under 10%, even, even of the, uh, the, the West. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird one. Um, there's, there's one other concept that you speak about a lot, which is, um, social capital. And that kind of, uh, strikes close to home for me because I, I, I spoke about that as well, especially in, in terms of social trust, because I come from Eastern Europe. And to me, it was very clear the second I went to Western Europe to study and uh, to work there, uh, that, you know, one of the, the biggest differences between uh, where I came from and where I was going uh, is that differential in, in social trust and the fact that, you know, it's, it's very easy to do business in the West or it used to be, because that's, you know, that's another one of my big subjects is that, you know, even in the last 10 years, things have changed dramatically. Um, where it used to be very easy to do business in the West because there was this kind of underlying current of um, just, just essentially you would trust, you'd rather trust the person that you met on the street or someone that you dealt with than not trust them, which was exactly the opposite, you know, where I came from. In, in Romania or in Eastern Europe, people tend to test, trust their family, trust people that they know directly or have had experience with for a long time. Um, there's a lot of bribery as well. There's a lot of relationships uh, because that's the way you get stuff done in a space without social trust. And social trust is something that's very, very, very hard to accumulate. And I saw, and I saw people in the West just spending it spending it like just like <laughs> it was nobody's business like you know it was a fire sale on social trust and i thought yeah this this is very unsustainable yes well i'm actually i'm 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 really glad we got to this cuz this is my wheelhouse i love talking about this <laughs> and it's it's um it's actually it's a stroke of luck that you are um from eastern europe because i use the the eastern western europe divide as an example of what i'm talking about um a lot and as an example of the dangers the risks that you run when you try to impose social capital from the top down when you like try to build a high trust society using the state which i think a lot of people especially like national conservatives get kind of fed up and they're like yeah well like the libs are using the state to like tell us that we can't take ivermectin and so, therefore, we must use the state to, which is, you know, it's the frustration is understandable, but there's only so much that the state can do uh, before it becomes very counterproductive. And you have grandmothers who like squash the street to tell on you, which I think is, is kind of how Eastern Europe ended up. So, yeah, I think the most important dynamic of social capital is that it is really easy to spend and very hard to build. And ultimately, there's no shortcut. Uh, there's no set. There, there are a set of sets of policies that you can adopt that will facilitate it, but you can't legislate social capital. In fact, when you change the law, it almost, you know, always takes some social capital, especially in a, in a society that's already low trust. You have to be really careful with the way that you employ the state. And to your point about people in the West kind of free spending it, there was an analysis I saw, I think it was on unheard. I can't quite remember where I saw it, um, that really struck a chord with me. And it, it essentially, it held up um, Jack Kerouac and the road as an example of kind of the, the mindset in the 60s that took over where, you know, in that book, Kerouac and his friends basically leave a trail of broken families behind them. They, they impregnate women and tell them that they'll love them and they'll marry them and then never speak to them again. Uh, and this was in 1950s America where promises like that were still taken at face value much more than they are today. And by abusing that and then by portraying it as like cool and like suave and like what all the kids are doing, you know, he really did a number on social trust. And he actually, uh, in that book, uh, oftentimes used language with very uh, religious overtones. Um, he talked about, you know, mysteries and, and ecstasy and, 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 you know, these, these words that we often associate with a religious experience to describe his iconoclasm and his, you know, uh, abuse of social trust. And so, you know, by sanctifying it almost, he made it okay for a generation. And that's how you ended up at 68. And, um, you know, it's all been kind of downhill since then as far as social trust is concerned. Um, and that's really primarily what my account is focused on. It's trying to get people 
who are young and disaffected and who are about to like stick their heads in a blender by going to join, you know, politics to take a step back and say, like, this is not the best way. This is this is not how we should be addressing this problem. Like owning the libs is not is it's only going to get you so far. You can't like facts and logic your way out of kind of a social quandary like this. Like there, there is no substitute to going out into your communities and doing the work and giving it time. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you described, that um, perspective that, you know, is, is mostly associated with the 60s, but it's been it's been kind of simmering in, in um, you know, post-Enlightenment Europe for a long time. It kind of bloomed in the 60s. It's essentially um, kind of the, the uh, mill's, unchained individual, you know, the idea that you have no unchosen bonds. Like Jack Kerouac chose all of his bonds. He didn't want many. He wanted to be uh, unbonded <laughs> and, and to, to, to go out and do um, whatever his heart desired. Um, and that was, that was seen as the primary right, the primary, uh, the will of the individual you know the the homunculus behind the eyes driving the meat suit uh to um to enact uh his authenticity into the world because that that's essentially what it means to be authentic an authentic individual to just essentially do the things that you want to do without being tied to other people um yeah. and that's that's I feel like, you know, if you really think about it, that's essentially, you know, what the Church of Satanism preaches as well. You know, that's not, that's not a surprising, <laughs> surprising way of looking at the world. Yeah, the Church of Satanism, I would put in that same category as, as very, very liberal Protestantism. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think either the Satanists or the Protestants would like that. <laughs> but I'm actually, I'm glad we, we touched on this too, because it's, I think, is indicative of this really important bifurcation in the movement that is at least very, very present on Instagram. Maybe you can tell me if, if a similar disagreement is raging on Twitter. I personally, and this is, this is a personal standpoint, I cannot stand people who take themselves too seriously. I can't. Like, I, I would much rather you be inappropriately flippant than inappropriately serious. And that's, that's the personal preference. <laughs> and uh, I, I emphasize that it's personal because the debate is how serious should we be? Um, a lot of people in this sphere on Instagram are very, very serious and take themselves very, very seriously. And you see that in the way that they write. It's often very overwrought, very formal. They take great care to adhere to obscure grammatical rules. Some of them have tried to bring back various forms of like Middle English <laughs> uh, they sound like they're from the Canterbury Tales like it's <laughs> you know and even when they're not overwrought there's this sense that like we're here to save the world obviously this the the weight of their mission rests heavy, heavy as the head that wears the solar crown um, <laughs> and you know on the opposite side you have people like Bronze Age Pervert who makes a point out of you know speaking like a two-year-old, you know, and, and him and people like him are almost, they, they take themselves almost as seriously in that sense that they're, they're like very committed to their persona of acting like a, like a two-year-old and speaking like a two-year-old. And so even they don't really escape it um, because it becomes clear that it's an affectation and they're not really like, that's not how he talks. Come on. <laughs> so um and there's there's two um main strands of thought and i think i've probably given away which one i fall into but the first one is you know the modern world imposes no constraints upon us there's no kind of social norms to tell us you know how to behave everything goes uh we're in a really permissive do what you feel like culture so it's up to us to impose these rules on ourselves and, you know, that sometimes takes the form of taking ourselves a little seriously. But the point is that we are imposing this order where we want to see it. And that's like where the core strength of the movement is. And the response to that is, yeah, it's important. And certainly rules are better than no rules. But imposing rules for the sake of having rules comes across as silly and vaguely immature and inauthentic in the way that you were describing. And so if we're throwing the whole thing away and we're starting fresh, why wouldn't we you know, we might as well come up with like a, a like a system, like a good reason to impose these rules, as opposed to just you know larping like you're an Orthodox Christian on the internet. Like, so, so, so I don't know if there's that kind of debate between people who take themselves really seriously and people who don't on Twitter, but it certainly speaks to to the issue of authenticity, and it's something that I think will have to be resolved one way or the other fairly soon. 
Yeah, there's there's definitely a, there's many many schisms, many many beefs. That's one. I think that's one fault line. Um, there is a a big, <laughs> a very funny uh, incident on Twitter. I think about a few months ago. There was one one guy who was a, a very um, he was a kind of a political philosopher analyst. He wrote a book, um, a very complex, very heavy book. Um, I think about, about Bertrand de Juvenel, I've heard it from many people that it's actually a good book, but it had that heavy style, you know, he was very scholarly and he took himself very, very seriously. And then at one point he had this idea that every, um, you know, successful poster, myself included, (laughs) whereas, um, as a, a title of glory, um, was, uh, was a Peter Thiel or some sort of plant, someone who's been, you know, funded by, by, you know, nefarious interests. And then he got, he got very, uh, he, he turned in, in internet lingo into a, a, a lol cow for a little bit. And every big account just, you know, had a good time making fun of, you know, the seriousness of which not only did he see himself, but also the fact that he wasn't as popular felt to him like a conspiracy. <laughs> and it was really, you know, it was, it was kind of a bit laughable. I'm sorry, in, in case ever someone in his entourage listens to this, <laughs> it was just really funny. And at one point he deactivated his account because it's just like the, it was merciless, but he did insist. Like he, for days, he just was like, do you see the, the, the cabal? He, they're coming <laughs> after me. And that I'm, it was, it's just a whole funny story. And yeah. He, he was the most serious, most serious kind of like neo-reactionary type guy. And I was like, okay. And yeah, it's, it's not good even on Twitter to be, to take yourself too seriously. Cause yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point you're like a frog with an anonymous account, like, like chill. Exactly. That's, that's, at least, that's at least how I see it. I mean, and it's probably, um, it's probably, uh, for me, at least an artifact of the fact that I have, you know, no qualifications whatsoever. I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm leaving from this podcast to go to my accounting 101 class. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, I'm in a frat, like, 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 I'm not, like, I am not, I should not be taking myself seriously. And so it's, I mean, it becomes, it's easy for me to say, like, you know, like, relax. And it's become kind of a running joke on my account to, like, tell people to go garden. Yeah. Which is, which is, I mean, I don't even, I don't even remember how that started. But that is basically, like, the one piece of advice that I'm qualified to give. So, so, so that's what I stick to. It's a good one. And that's one thing I really love about your post is that, literally I think every post at the end has like practical recommendations which is you don't really see that in in staunch solemn works of political theory your reaction yeah (laughs) well because a lot of the feedback I was getting was like you're really really good at like bitching out liberals but like like what what, what do you want us to do and I was like that's a good question I don't don't quite know so I thought for a while like what, what do we do like obviously we can't like go to the state that's you know uh, that would legitimize people calling us all borderline fascists. And like, it, again, with the social capital thing, like it just, it would backfire spectacularly, right? You'd end up with a low trust society that's like held together artificially by the state that's like sitting on the lid of the pot. Like it's going to blow off. That's what happened with the Warsaw Pact. I think Romania in particular was uniquely violent about that. So it's just, it's not a good solution. So I, you know, you can't tell people to go take to the streets or like, God forbid, like start a political party. Uh, like so like you know but what can you do and it really it it, it comes down to you if you want to see a society that focuses on on you know local community bonds and like a very kind of human scale sense of meaning there's no there's no substitute for just going out and doing that and i think that especially in the united states the kind of the the narrative around world war ii has become it inflects every kind of political conversation where, you know, it has to take this idea of like an armed struggle and like, you know, jackboots on the cobblestones. But that's just not what the moment calls for. There are, there are many different types of heroism, one of which is, you know, throwing yourself in front of a machine gun for your cause. But I think, you know, what is required of people who are looking for meaning today, now, is kind of a quieter type. Something that's more focused on being like the best, you know, to, to again, beat a dead horse, the best version of yourself you can be every day. And, you know, being there for your family and for your community. That's that's what we need. Um, and it's not nearly as dramatic as, you know, D-Day. But in a sense, it, like it takes almost as much discipline. Yeah, you had a, an interesting post, um, um, kind of against like this this hustle culture. The idea that you know you you just need to be more productive and, and work more. And you you said that you know you want to be the best version of yourself, but not necessarily in that direction. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the self-improvement culture today um, is, it has its roots, I think, in, in like this Victorian sense of like, make yourself like the most, most valuable tool that you can be for society. It's a very like first industrial revolution kind of, of way of, of looking at it. And a lot of people treat it like it's a kind of video game. Like, you know, you're going to grind for a higher level, right? Like you can just like, like put your face in a book and come up with like plus three intelligence. Um, <laughs> which is like, like, like that's just, that's not really how it works. And so, you know, people end up spinning their wheels a lot. And, you know, for young disaffected people who find themselves in the dark corners of the internet where I live, um, they, they like, they come to it because they're kind of in a state of revolt against a society that, that they see as complacent and as permissive of mediocrity. But the solution then isn't this like frantic kind of directionless effort that doesn't really lead to much. What, what this society misses is, is the development of, of I think, as, as Jung said, the interiority, the interior self, you know, much more so than just allowing people to be mediocre. That's the problem. And that kind of development can only happen organically. You cannot force yourself to know yourself. And, you know, for a lot of people, that includes that process, that journey includes a lot of rest and reflection and contemplation and, you know, things that you can't put on a resume, but are nonetheless very important to do. So yeah, I think it's a mistake to kind of treat it like a video game. I think it builds this culture of work for the sake of work, which is not productive. Yeah, and it's it's, it's very unnatural, especially for I don't think any any animal works just for for the for the pleasure of work. Um, it's it's a it's a really interesting um, uh, article that you wrote recently, I think, about um, the the family values and the nuclear family, which are kind of like, yeah, these, uh, these right wing in a way, shibboleths. Um, what is wrong with family values? <laughs> yeah. So that means that I, for, for those of you who have not looked at my, at my post, I titled it why the nuclear family sucks. So I've been getting a lot of, of blowback on that, which has been, I mean, it brings people to the page at least. <laughs> um, so family values, you know, per se, I have, I have no objection to. Um, but I view the nuclear family, kind of parents and children, and that's it, as itself a modern kind of artifact. And to use a favorite right-wing word, a very degenerated version of the family. And I think, you know, for most of human history, it was not really viable to live far away from your family unit. Uh, for most people, you needed that support network. Um, you needed to be around people who you had kind of kinship ties to. And you couldn't have like a single income household. Like you couldn't have a dad who like went to work while like the wife stayed home and vacuumed. And it's actually, it's, it's very interesting to trace the development of the nuclear family because there's some evidence for it arising pre-industrialization in Northwest Europe. And there's, you know, theories out there that this actually contributed to the industrial revolution because it, it provided that kind of labor pool that was perfect for working in factories. But certainly across the rest of the world, this was a very kind of post-industrial way of organizing the family. And so I'm not opposed to family values as much as I am opposed to the idea of the nuclear family as the ideal family structure. I think that, you know, that title belongs to the extended family and kind of this, this, this clan network that you don't see so much of in modern times. And so my, my objection to the people who advocate for the nuclear family is probably the same as my objection to the classical liberals, where, you know, it's just a stage back in the same process. Like you're just rolling back the clock a little bit. Like it won't actually lead to a paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm as as being part of kind of both the nuclear family and and extended family because I'm my my mom's my neighbor now. Um, it's I I can you know I I see it both ways in a in a way because I've I've grown up obviously as you know a, a liberal person. I am a liberal because I'm part of the you know the the liberal empire and I'm just permeated with this stuff. Uh, and I have the same kind of resistance to the unchosen bond of, you know, having to deal with the friction and difficulty of someone from a different generation and stuff like that. And there is that. And I kind of understand why people try to opt out of it. But at the same time, it is extremely difficult. You know, if you have some, you know, my husband works full time, I work on and off now, I'm going to work a bit more soon enough. So it's, it's almost impossible without hired help. Uh, to to do anything or without leaving your children in daycare, which is a whole nother can of worms, which it's, yeah. it's really problematic. So yeah, I mean, it's just, the, the problem with the nuclear family is just it, it practically is, it does not work. 
you need to leave, put your child somewhere so you can take a shower. Like this is just a practical problem that no one's solved yet. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I like your point a lot about the unchosen bonds thing. I think that's really what a lot of the liberal objection to the family is. Um, it gets in the way of a society with perfectly equal opportunity because you're so defined by the, by the quality of the family. To your point about childcare, um, like a lot of things, uh, first and foremost, sexual liberation. This is a model that works very well for people who can afford to, to outsource the costs of it and not so well for people who can't afford childcare and do have to leave their kids in, in a state-funded daycare um, if that even exists, which for a lot of people it doesn't. And when you leave kids alone, they get into trouble. I was left alone a lot as a kid. I got into a lot of trouble. Um, that's my source. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of lifestyle models in contemporary society that work very well for people with the resources to hire a nanny or, you know, go to rehab or, you know, fly across state lines and get an abortion, right? Like there's just, there's any number of modes of living that work well for people who can, uh, you know, afford to bear the consequences. And then people who can't see this as, as a model. They see it on, on TV. They see it as kind of the, the modish way of living, but it just, it doesn't translate. Yeah. And there's this, you know, kind of universalist lie that, uh, you know, that this type of freedom is just, you know, it's just all upside um, and it affects people equally. Uh, and just the, the absolute inability to not just, you know, bear the cost of the, the fallout, but even just a responsibility to say, oh, you know, it, it might be the case that not everyone is equal. Not everyone has the same desires and not everyone has the same equipment. Like, for example, if you look at Silicon Valley, you know, there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of even polycules that work well for the people in them. You know, I mean, a lot of them don't right. work well, but some do a certain type of, you know, weird mindset and, you know, a certain type of constellation of people that are very, very, they're outliers. They're very much in the fringes of a normal distribution. Um, but this is, you know, this is kind of a high status thing that they're doing. Uh, and then someone who doesn't have that mental <laughs> equipment tries to do that and just completely implodes their life and turns into like this, this spiraling drama and, uh, you know, surprise, that just, just does not work for everyone. And this is just the ultimate sin of liberalism to just tell people, yeah, people are different and it's okay. Yeah. I mean, that really is ultimately the cardinal sin. You know, people are different. <laughs> You're right. That, that is, that is, that is a phrase that does not sit well. Um, and you know, you might have people who, who accept it on its face and say, oh yeah, of course, but like they're all equal which is kind of a distinction without a difference um, when it comes to stuff like this, uh, because you can be as equal as you want, but different things are going to work for different people. It really dredges up problems with the universalist outlook to suggest that different lifestyle modes might work for different people. It's kind of the best place to observe the conflict between classical and contemporary definitions of freedom, because I think for a lot of classical thinkers, freedom came from discipline and from placing yourself in, in an order that allowed you to function to the best of your ability as like an integrated part of a society. Whereas freedom has become redefined as doing what you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it, which, you know, different benefits to each. Like sometimes I don't feel like doing my assigned role in society, like it kind of sucks. <laughs> so so I get the impulse to, to drop it and, and run away. But yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to lifestyle choices, that's really, and it grates to, to hear someone say like, oh, like that's not for you. Right. It's a, it's a difficult thing to sell people on, but it is it's important to, to acknowledge. Exactly. And, you know, the the more this conception of freedom gets reified by um, the elites or, you know, the people that everyone's kind of looking up to, uh, the more the, the harder it's going to be to to even you know imagine you know, kind of the um, kind of that Aristotelian freedom um, of, you know, kind of making yourself free, you know, practicing freedom uh, as opposed to being a slave to your base desires and your urges and your needs uh, as a, as the human animal, you're kind of trying to transcend that. Um, and it's getting harder and harder because like, there's not even, you know, I, I feel like the, a lot of this stuff is kind of like a, a commons, you know, like the, the tragedy of the commons. There's kind of a moral commons of society. There's uh, you know, there's, there's essentially 
if I go outside of my house and and the whole street is plastered with with advertisements and and dirt and you know and uh, packages and people you know scratching themselves because they they really need to get a fix and stuff like that. That's that's a there, there's a commons aspect to that. It's just not it's not just like the free world and stuff like that. There's there's something precious in not having that or in, in pres- preserving something that's um, I don't know. There's there's I don't know. Do you, do you understand where I'm going with this? Because I yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. I mean, and 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 it's ridiculous to pretend like that doesn't affect you. Yeah. Right. Like it does affect you. It affects everybody. Like there's no like no no man is an island. No human being exists in a vacuum. When your society is suffering, you are suffering, even if you refuse to acknowledge it. And to your point about reification of the term, I do think that this is an area where, you know, any emergent post-liberal consensus really needs to do some work. Because I think for people who are dissatisfied with the status quo, and this is most, mostly Jordan Peterson's fault, um, and I, I really think he's done a number on us there, you kind of hold like Foucault. And like these like left bank intellectuals like to blame, like you said, like, oh, it's postmodernism's fault. This is like why women don't want to sleep with me Um, or like some some variant thereof. But Foucault was, although he has been like used and abused by university faculties, and that's that's a whole nother can of worms. He had really interesting things to say about power, um, which he viewed as a morally neutral thing and power and specifically power in language. And, you know, he who controls the, the language controls the, the narrative. For example, we have seen the definition of racism change radically in 10 years. In the introduction of terms like transphobia, Latinx, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a mark against classical liberals and people who, who are in the mold of jo- Jordan Peterson because, you know, while you might advocate for free speech, no speech can truly be free if your very language is in the grip of some kind of doomsday cult splinter faction right like yeah. <laughs> like when when you're when your medium of communication is compromised free speech is almost meaningless exactly it's power frames language it's you, you already like that's that's what the argument i make all the time on the podcast is like the the problem with kind of anti-woke liberals because that's essentially what most of the idw are is that they're you know a lot of them are trying to say oh you know the the democrats are the, are the real racists like you're just you're still playing within the who are the real racists frame. That's the frame that's, you know, you need to go a thousand steps back. That's not the question you should be asking yourself. You need to start your own thing. Yeah. And that, that's why I'm, I'm so kind of hard-headedly, like that's why I, 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 I have a lot of posts defining like what liberalism is. And I, I do it again and again, and it really annoys some of my long-term followers because they're like, okay, we get it, but it's, it's, it's important yes, yes. right, to, to define terms before you get started. You know, if your language has been captured by a hostile force, there's only so much that you can possibly do. And yeah, I think taking a thousand steps back is the first step towards fixing the problem. Exactly. And, and that's why I really want people to, to go to your page and read all of your posts about liberalism, because why is it so important? Why is it so complex and strange? And, you know, why do we have to kind of repeat this? Because we've been enchanted. We've been mesmerized by language. Uh, and this is the water we swim in. So to be able to step out of the frame, you kind of have to deprogram yourself. You have to you have to equip yourself with new language, demesmerize yourself, hypnotize yourself with a new frame and then try to embody that frame and then you need to do that you know it's like a shower you need to take it every day yep so, yeah you are absolutely right and you know you can see with slightly different wording you see this this concept on the postmodern left all the time uh decolonize your mindset is is one of the big buzzwords that i being on a university campus am exposed to very regularly <laughs> there's all kinds like that and it's unfortunate that that kind of mindset has become so associated with with the postmodern left in particular because it really turns everybody else off and it leaves them and they're the only ones who are making use of this of this you know dimension and they really are playing 4D chess with this because they're 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 the, they're the only ones who are doing battle in like the the I don't even know what to call it the semantical realm. Yeah, because they're the only ones who accept that 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 is an actual thing. Like people, you know, in the classical liberal thing, know they say, oh, it's it's objectivism and uh, not objectivism, uh, positivism is that like you know expired philosophy from two hundred years ago. <laughs> expired philosophy. Yeah, it's got like it's it's curled. It's got lumps in it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it has some, some practical uses, some, I suppose, profane uses. And you see that with the switch from illegal to undocumented immigration, right? Where, where you know, just, just a switch in, in the way that you refer to it has, has in a large part, legitimized it and, you know, forced the Overton window 10 steps to the left. Like that battle is won before it started when you have anti-immigration politicians saying undocumented migrants and pro-life versus anti-choice. In the U.S., the abortion battle is still very hotly contested. It's about the one place where cultural conservatives have not been dealt like a Stalingrad-level defeat in the past 40 years. So anti-choice has not become the mainstream yet, but people are using it and it's getting there. And look at the speed with which the consensus around undocumented immigration changed. Or, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you had like 45% support for gay marriage. Now it's 80. Like at some point you hit critical mass with an idea and it takes over. And I think it is a matter of when, not if. Once anti-choice has come to the fore, I mean, you've, you, again, you've, you've lost the battle. You've been outflanked. They're, they're behind your imaginate line, so to speak. The, <laughs> I mean, and, you know, it, so it has those practical applications, but even more so than that, you're framing the way that people are thinking about this internally, yeah. right? When you, when you have the ability to sculpt the playing field like that, it speaks to the fundamental weakness of their arguments that they lose it all. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because essentially the, the, the semantic ground that everyone's uh, working in and th- that they're very expert in is, is, like you said, it's the framework of the Second World War narrative. It's like always pointing out in every situation, who are the Nazis and who are the Jews? Once you've yeah, right. made that distinction, it's pretty clear how you're going to shape the language around it to, you know, rep- you know, the, you have the site that represents hate and then you have the side of the good people and you just need to point out the Nazis and then you, you solve the problem <laughs> semantically. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, and that narrative leads to this pretty grotesque spectacle of like anti-mandate protesters showing up with like stars of david on their chest and just like it's, it's stuff like that like i mean it's 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 absurd and it goes absolutely both ways but that's just that's that's the example um that most readily springs to mind of like come on like this really does not this is not like the end-all be-all of western civilization this is not like our defining moment like you can have a conversation god what's that um what's that law that law of the internet like as as an online discourse gets longer, the probability of Adolf Hitler being mentioned approaches mm-hmm. one. And I've just I've just gone and done it for our conversation. So. <laughs> We're always you know in God <laughs> here because this is a fash uh, podcast at least I've heard. Have you have you been has has it has it been called that before? <laughs> I'm sure it has. Um, I don't know. I've it's 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 more kind of like um, associations and words because you know, I've had I've had some spicy guests on. So obviously people have said that oh you know this is a, a dark dark podcast. But <laughs> um, no, I don't I don't think no one's really come after me yet, which is I don't it, maybe maybe should be surprising uh, given my my roster. But um, no, not not really. To be honest, I just make a, I make a joke. Yeah. I, tried to- <laughs> I saw um, on a conversation with one of your guests, he described himself as slightly to the right of Attila the Hun, which oh, I yeah. thought was, <laughs> I thought was hilarious. Um, <laughs> you know, in some, some, in some ways, I feel like if you're not slightly to the right of Attila the Hun, you're not paying attention. <laughs> Absolutely. I um I uh want to ask you the question of the show because we're we're coming up on time and I usually leave about 15 minutes for for this question and just in case the, the guest has like a you know some something big to communicate. Um it is about a subversive thinker, um living or dead, any any domain you can imagine um that you think is underrated and that people would derive uh, a lot of value from. That's a great question. Um and um, I don't have some diatribe prepared for you, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> very short. It doesn't matter. One person who I find fascinating, really, really interesting, even, even though I kind of think he's like a crackpot, is Graham Hancock. And he's not a thinker per se. He is a freelance archaeologist who is convinced that there, at one point in our history, was a highly advanced civilization on Antarctica, and that Antarctica itself was located in a more northerly latitude, uh, so that it's like its northern fringes were temperate. 
and could support a river system. And he says that at some point, about 10,000 years ago, the Earth's crust shifted. Like the whole thing shifted about 20 degrees south, southwest. The analogy he uses is if you were to detach somehow an orange from its skin and then slide the skin around on top of the orange, he thinks that's what happened with our crust. And he wrote this book called Fingerprints of the Gods. I just, I loved it. I mean, he, he lost me about three quarters of the way in. Until then, I was like, oh, this is like cool. I have no archaeological background whatsoever. I was taken in with it. He eventually made a couple of assertions that, you know, even I was like, okay. But I, I mean, if you're looking for an entertaining read, and if you're looking for like a reason to learn more about like the Earth's astronomical movements, uh, he talks a lot about like orbital precession and the 22,000 year cycles of astrological ages. I don't know. I found it to be like a really fun, stimulating read, even if there was no ancient civilization from Antarctica. I mean, it's, it's cool to think about what if, right? And ultimately, like, what's the point of thinking at all if you're not going to come up with something interesting? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. no, I've, I've never heard of him, but that's that sounds like um, that sounds possible. You know, uh, to be honest, like the, the, the level of theories I've had on this podcast, this is probably within, you know, the yeah, sounds legit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I won't spoil it for you. He makes a compelling case for some parts. Other parts, you like. You know, even even if you were coming into it with uh, with me, I was looking for something interesting to do with my time. So I came in pretty credulous. He makes some claims that are reaches, but like really, it's 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 a fun ride if you if you've got the time. It's not a super long book. It comes with all kinds of pretty drawings. I'm a simple man. I appreciate the drawings. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I I want to make like a, a super long list of all the cool books that people recommend in this podcast, but just haven't had the time. But it's yeah, I think that would make for a nice little piece of of content because um, we've had some some cool ones. Some you know a lot of that are on my Kindle. Never never got the time to do them, but yeah, it's uh, sounds like a like an interesting hypothesis. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This is a lot of fun. I'm very happy to be uh, following you on Instagram, which everyone should do at totally not uh, an Anacreon uh, on Instagram. Is there any other format, place, Twitter, maybe? Yes. So I mean, so I will look into uh, making a Twitter. I've been promising myself I'd do that. So I need to figure out which handles are available and move from there. But I will, uh, I'll get back to you about that. And then I also, I, I have my own website because I wanted something that was kind of outside of the meta um, sphere, metaverse. Um, God, what like a skin crawling term that is. Um, but it's uh, www.federalistreview.org. Cool. It's like the Federalist and National Review come together, but not at all like that. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So, so the idea, I was originally going to do this project with some other friends um, and we were all going to take pseudonyms and talk to each other. Um, ultimately, you know, life got in the way and it's just me now. So we were going to do, we got the idea from like the Federalist Papers, which were big and American pre-revolutionary kind of, they were like where, where people who were dissatisfied with the state of things came to talk, basically. So it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a lofty name for like some dudes with a laptop, but you know, why not? Got to start somewhere. <laughs> of course. I mean, every, every website on the internet, even the ones with lofty names started as a, a little, a little thing. So you never know where, where it takes you. So, right. Maybe someday we'll grow into it. Absolutely. <laughs> we will check out the federalistreview.com. Dot org. Dot org. Um, yeah, we did the dot org too. We really. <laughs> you're, you're gonna. It's gonna blow up. <laughs> it's gonna blow up. I have faith. <laughs> awesome. Um, yes, check that out. Go to um, Instagram, and also I will wait for you. I'll update this with your new Twitter handle uh, as, as soon as it becomes available, and then I'll introduce you to all the cool kids on Twitter. Um, because that would be amazing. Nice I'm looking forward to, to that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll I'll see you there, and thanks again for coming on. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Take care. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>